Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, more acts of blue on black violence generate upset. Also, the questionable moratorium on evictions and mental health toll of racism. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. With the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial hanging in the balance, two new incidents of police violence against unarmed blacks add salt to the wound. What's going on? How many occupants are in your vehicle? It's only myself. Why are your weapons drawn? What's going on? Since its release on Sunday, this video has gone viral. Army medic Karen Nazario, black Latino Why? lieutenant, was pulled by Virginia Why? police in December, pepper sprayed, handcuffed, and forced onto the ground after police failed to notice a temporary license plate properly and legally displayed in his rear window. He has filed a million dollar lawsuit. I've never looked out the window and saw a gun blazing so, so immediately. But when we follow you that long, look at, look at the climate this day and, and against everybody, against us, against y'all. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not out to hurt you, and I know you don't want to hurt me. That's not what it's about. What it's about is making sure that everybody goes home at the end of the day. Then later, Sunday afternoon, back in Minneapolis, the home of George Floyd, a mother grieves the loss of her 20-year-old son, Dante Wright, who was shot and killed by police after they pulled him over for having an expired registration tag. The officer who fired the weapon, 26-year police veteran Kim Potter, claimed she intended to use her taser, but grabbed her gun accidentally. Nonetheless, she has resigned from the force, the chief of police for the city of Minneapolis has resigned, and Potter has been charged with second-degree manslaughter. Joining us now, I want to welcome Jesse McCoy, supervising attorney for the Duke Civil Justice Clinic, Lamicia Whittington with Advanced Carolina, and social activist Kerwin Pittman. Lamicia, let me ask you, reporters, uh, according to Dante Wright's mother, have been asking her what do you want? Do you want justice? And I want to ask you, uh, because she responded by saying, it's not about justice. My son is gone. I want accountability. What do you think that the black community wants? Uh, the black community wants what we've elevated for the past uh, decades, years, close to a century. Many advocates and experts and community on the ground has said we need to uh, completely invest our tax dollars that goes to these police budgets into other uh, 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 necessary resources, such as community interventionists, our folks, uh, community policing our own communities, right, where we can protect our own and know our own community better than anyone else. We need licensed social workers, licensed psychologists, folks who are actually specialized in addressing special needs with intervention that has experience, but also uh, uh, the credentials to do so. And we need folks who are grounded in our communities, folks who look like us and are from our neighborhoods. We've said this. Uh, this is just a long line of secession of the cries, but that's what our community needs in accountability. That's what we've asked for. And also accountability with enforcement. What about the punishment and the constitutional amendments, the laws that needs to be changed, the insurance coverage that police officers should be required to even have, right? So These accountability are, is key. Accountability yeah. is key. And Jesse, let's focus on Nazario's case. Law officials in, in Virginia maintain uh, that 
uh, recently as a few days ago that what happened was actually a teaching moment. And had only Nazario followed orders, uh, things might have ended up differently. And we've heard things like this before. Follow orders, do not run, comply immediately. What is problematic about that? What are your rights when you get stopped by the police? Well, we have to remember that the basis of this stop was a traffic stop. It's, this wasn't any kind of criminal investigation. Uh, this was supposed to be a garden variety traffic stop. I believe that Lieutenant Nazario did exactly what he was supposed to do in uh, slowing down his speed. And he even told the officers that he was trying to get to a well-lit area, which is what you're taught. Uh, we have to remember also context. This is a black man driving through Windsor, Virginia. Uh, so trying to get to a well-lit area in the midst of uh, being stopped for a traffic stop is very important. Uh, once he was stopped, he continuously asked with his hands held out the window, uh, what am I being stopped for? Is and he allowed to do that? Is he allowed to question the police at that absolutely. point? Absolutely, because at that point he has no idea what's going on and he has already complied by stopping. The officers rarely would ask anybody to step out of a car for a garden variety traffic stop. But if they ask you to step out of a car, do you need to go ahead on and do that? Or are you, are you worried about what's going to happen if you step out of the car? Well, again, this is a black man in Windsor, Virginia. So uh, police asking for him to step out of the car, usually for a black man, police asking you to step out of the car is never a good sign. Um, but if he has already complied and he still has no idea what's going on, the police are the ones who have the higher responsibility of explaining to him why he is being stopped. And if he's being detained for the purpose of just running his license, uh, that's fine. They can ask for license and registration. They can do what they need to do for the traffic stop. But um, compliance doesn't always work out in our favor. Well, let me bring you in, Kerwin, because you have been assigned to the governor's uh, task force for racial equity in criminal justice. Certainly, we're, we're a participant in the protests from last summer, and now we know that there have been additional protests in recent days. What have you been talking about on this task force over the last several months to try to move toward equal justice? Um, yeah, so what we've been talking about uh, specifically is policy change and attacking and building different policies that will hold these bad actors accountable, um, such as Kim um, Potter. Um, it is no reason that um, she should have just been charged with second-degree manslaughter um, when she could have been charged with third-degree murder as well. And in 2007, in fact, in the same state, a black officer shot a white woman by accident, and he was charged with both charges, second-degree uh, manslaughter and third degree murder, who subsequently uh, got uh, 12 and a half years behind this. So you see the racial biases baked within the system, even when it comes to accountability for black and white law enforcement officers. And so that's one of the things we've been trying to tackle and hone in on is the racial biases built within this structure of this system and tackling those that hold these individuals accountable, but also hold the bad actors that perpetrate the, the racial biases within the system accountable. Well, Jesse, one of the uh, things that Kerwin mentioned is being able to track the information and uh, largely because of the driving while black legislation from uh, Frank Balance many, many years ago, we've been able to accumulate some data. And now Senator Jay Chowdhury has recently introduced hate crime, uh, who, who recently introduced hate crime legislation, has now introduced a bill to require that law enforcement agencies develop policies to prohibit 
the use of racial profiling in traffic stops and searches. What do you think is the value of this legislation? Is this making a, would this make a difference? Well, I think it always makes a difference if the point of this is to ensure that we are protecting certain communities that we know are disproportionately uh, impacted by police. Uh, the problem that I have, though, is I don't think this is something that is new. I think that we have copious records to show that certain communities are preyed upon and profiled for these stops and for these police interactions. So the question becomes, what do we do knowing the, the information that we already have? What are we prepared to do to hold police accountable? Lamisha, is this a step in the right direction? What more can be done? Uh, this is definitely a historic bill. You know, Senator Chowdhury, Senator Murdoch, Senator Mahala introducing this. This is a bill that uh, is past due, that should have been incorporated as a constitutional amendment upon emancipation of slavery. So when we're talking about this bill, we also need to make sure what is defined as racial profiling when existing as black and brown in America is the, the, the crime. Right. So when we talk about the defining this bill, we need to be very clear how we see racial uh, uh, profiling, because it's many things. If you can't drive with an expired license tag, just like you can't drive with an air freshener, just like you can't drive with a, a temporary license plate in the window, which is legal, right? That's racial profiling. And how do we enforce when our law enforcement or others and agencies uh, violate that racial profiling act if this legislation goes to bill, right, goes to law? And so that's some of my questions. And the last thing is the advisory board will need teeth. We need to know very clearly how we're going to enforce, again, racial profiling, the policies that are, can be created from the data. Guess what? Needs to come through that advisory board. It needs teeth. And the data also needs black and brown people to collect that data and to create the narrative because only us that are impacted can give a true narrative as what's already been stated. We're impacted. We can tell you how that data is because we're the subject matter experts. Well, Kerwin, uh, that might be directed to you as well because you're on this task force. And, you know, we're talking about something that occurred in Minnesota, something that happened in Virginia, but it is not unique to those states. And you know, uh, perhaps firsthand, ab about how um, policing is taking place and how, how racial bias has been an issue here in North Carolina. Can you talk a little bit about that, you know, the fact that it is here in North Carolina and, you know, can a task force and advisory panel, you know, be helpful and instrumental? Uh, yeah, so racial biases is baked in the inception of um, the United States law enforcement uh, from slave patrols up into now. So it is in every state. It is not nothing new to North Carolina. Um, and so, as Lamisha said, we have to make sure and ensure that we create different uh, mechanisms to hold these individuals accountable. So it's about accountability and being able to enforce this accountability. Um, so when individuals make recommendations, though they are good, but without any type of teeth or backing behind these recommendations, it is extremely hard to hold these bad actors accountable. And so this is what you will see start to happen and change start to happen when individuals start losing their jobs, their livelihood, and going to jail behind their bad decisions, regardless if it was a mistake or not, because there's plenty of people in prison right now because they made a mistake. Um, so that is not an excuse. Um, um, and so we must find ways to enforce these recommendations to hold these actors accountable and start to tear down the racial biases baked within this system and build a new system. Kerwin Pittman, thank you so much. While Fair Housing Month is April, fair play has become questionable when it comes to the state and national moratorium on evictions, now extended through the end of June. Lamisha, let me ask you, can you share a little bit about housing insecurity and in the black community, particularly now after a year of COVID? Yes. 
So uh, housing pandemic and houselessness was already a pandemic for our communities prior to COVID, but COVID of course exacerbated, made it worse. And so even last year, uh, there was a moratorium uh, by Governor Cooper that ended. And there was a month before we had another protection, right? To protect folks from being evicted by the CDC. In that one month gap, 18,000 people were evicted in North Carolina. 15,000 out of that 18,000 that were now houseless contracted COVID-19 directly due to eviction. And then 400 of our community folks died from COVID-19 because they were evicted. This is the impact. 32% of all North Carolinians are renters. We know that 300,000 plus North Carolinians are impacted with being behind on their rent payments. This is how it's impacting us. We are talking with community members whose children has actually lost insulin due to being homeless and houseless, but also without enough money to pay for utilities. So in addition to evictions, we also need a utilities moratorium because our communities are faced with the double impact in addition to, of course, loss of insurance and other things and other protections. So that's what our communities are facing right now. We are in dire need and not enough funding to cover what's actually needed. It's just critical, um, and thank you for outlining it that in that way and also adding the issue of utilities because you could very well be in your home but not have the electricity, the access to Internet, the heat, whatever, to survive, and I think that those numbers are just um, incredible. Jesse, how is the moratorium supposed to work? Well, uh, we have to remember that this moratorium that was enacted by the CDC was done out of a public health concern. Uh, and the concern was that they didn't want evictions to create new transmissions of uh, COVID-19. At no point was this to protect housing per se. So because of that, we see the impact of those shortcomings in its operation. The moratorium right now only protects against uh, evictions that are based on non-payment of rent. Uh, so there are other types of evictions that are allowed to move forward, uh, uh, despite the fact that we have this moratorium. And it only covers people who are aware of the fact that there's a declaration form that they have to sign under penalty of perjury to stipulate that they make less than $99,000 if an individual or less than $198,000 if uh, a married filing jointly, uh, and that they have made reasonable efforts to seek social services or whatever rental assistance programs are in their area, and that they have continuously attempted to pay the partial payments of rent. As long as they are able to, to stand in that light, they are to be protected from being able to be evicted until the month of July. The problem, though, is that we have also carved in a number of exceptions for which landlords can challenge the veracity of those declarations. And if the landlord is successful in that challenge, they will be permitted to move forward. Can you share any of these sort of loopholes so, so that people can be aware? Absolutely. So one classic loophole is that landlords will often say, uh, we haven't been, there hasn't been an attempt made to pay the rent. But at the same token, when tenants have paid in those partial sums, the landlords have rejected the payment because it's not the full balance of the deficit. So in a sense, it gives the landlord the opportunity to have it both ways. Um, if people who largely aren't represented in court don't know about these exceptions, and as a result, they go to court and don't necessarily know how to defend themselves in these actions. That is so helpful. Can you talk, Lamisha, about rental aid and the difference? You know, you've got a moratorium, and then there's also a separate program that's providing rental aid. How is that working, and what's the distinction of impact? 
Sure. So right now we have the uh, HOPE program that I hope that many North Carolinians, if you're not all aware of, because funding is about to become available again in the next few weeks. So please follow the HOPE program. Uh, the HOPE program was an extension of uh, Governor Cooper's decision to allocate federal funding. I believe it was $175 million. So the HOPE program was created out of that. But because the need was so strong, they only they literally had to close the program within a month because that influx of applications, right? And so here's the other thing, more funding, $546.5 million in rental aid has been allocated for North Carolina, but because of impact of the General Assembly, a bill called H-196, if folks wanna look it up, has made it hard for the HOPE program to get that money out in a timely fashion. Now the HOPE program, because of all this kind of legal paperwork, uh, uh, administrative issues, they're now requiring the HOPE program to make up instead of one streamlined program to service all 100 counties. Now the HOPE program has to figure out how to make it unique for each county. So uh, 100 different programs for all 100 counties. That is absolutely red tape and has made it difficult. We've been in conversation with the folks, the leaders of the HOPE program, and even they said, this is too much. We just want to streamline it. We need to get it out. The money's there. And before we, we get out, we have just, thank you. Before mm -hmm. we get out, I have just a, a few more minutes. I do want to uh, talk about the risk of a false narrative kind of playing out and being reinforced due to perception or even a few real scenarios. So, you know, this crisis has created a situation to further enable people to take advantage of the system. Uh, Lamisha, talk about that, that narrative out there. How much of a problem is this? Well, it's absolutely a myth. I mean, if we're sitting on $546.5 million that hasn't been uh, dispersed to community, who's taking advantage? The money's still there, number one. Number two, we have three major issues. One is getting funding assistance, rental aid to community members and utilities assistance. Two is supporting landlords, right? That's also needing to pay their mortgage. But three is the fact that utility companies and landlords can choose not to take the funding from program or any other rental aid. So when we have our local uh, electeds, our state elected leaders who are really championing and, and, and pushing for money being allocated, we're advocating on the ground, hey, let's get this money. We get the money, yet the companies don't take the money. That's a problem in the system and a myth that we need to dispel about community and elevate why do we have the money? Why is it not being moved to communities? And why is it allowed that utility companies can say no? to that funding and landlords the same if it's there and available and for rental aid. Jesse, I'm gonna give you the last word on this. We have about a minute. Well, I always like to dispel this only because one, the money from the HOPE program goes to the landlord. It doesn't go to the tenant. Uh, number two, we understand that the moratorium impacts everyone, but we have to also understand that the moratorium isn't necessarily rent supplementation. The HOPE program is trying to add this dimension of rent supplementation for people who were displaced from work through no fault of their own. Uh, COVID-19 is a pandemic that has affected all of us. And as a result, what we need to do is people who are uh, given awards for HOPE funding should receive those awards and accept it and credit it for the tenant who uh, has otherwise been unable to make payment so that we can reduce those deficits and maintain housing. Jesse McCoy, Lamicia Whittington, thank you so much for joining us. Great information. Thank you.
I'd like to welcome Dr. Travis Andrews, a licensed clinical mental health counselor and co-owner of Andrews Andrews Counseling and Consulting, PLLC, with offices in Burlington and in Charlotte. Dr. Andrews, I want to just start by asking you to identify some of the stressors that people might recognize that tell them that it's time for professional assistance. Yes, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, first off, and uh, that's a great question. Uh, signs of distress typically look as if uh, typical or normal behaviors that are outside our, our, our norm. So behaviors outside of our norm. Those behaviors could be uh, more ir irritation than usual, uh, changes, changes in habits, such as your dress, your dressing, your appearance, eating habits, or sleeping. Also, talking about uh, feelings of despair, excessive worrying, trouble concentrating, and even uh, substance misuse. Wow, that's that's really interesting because uh, people might not put all of those things together, especially under COVID and dressing comfortably and feeling kind of lonely. All of this might be considered natural uh, side, you know, symptoms of COVID. But I want you to talk about some signs of mental distress that we might recognize in adults and kids that are a direct result of racism. Yes, as uh, far as uh, adults, it's, it's more or less feelings of uh, de depression and uh, despair in the sense of your confidence is, is, is uh, depleting um, from just being who you are and, and feelings and, and self-defeating talk such as I'm not good enough or uh, negative things always happen to me. And these are results of racism. Uh, so much society has, has uh, placed a picture for African-Americans in which that uh, we are inferior, we are feared, uh, we are animals, and anything I do is not correct. And those types of negative depictions are mainly due to society, places a toll on us psychologically, in which our confidence uh, drop uh, lessons and uh, our same drive and motivation is not there sometimes. As it relates to children, uh, similar symptoms, you know, um, far as not concentrating, uh, trouble focusing, um, very irritable, uh, angry outbursts, and a, a lot of isolation. So many times our, our children, uh, especially in our community, are being misdiagnosed. Uh, as soon as a child uh, is maybe hyperactive or not concentrating or focusing, uh, they tend to label them as uh, attention deficit disorder. However, the root of a lot of these issues are coming from trauma, uh, traumatic experiences that adults and children are facing on a daily basis um, in, in society. You mentioned the trauma. So if you're not necessarily uh, getting some direct commentary that you, that you would consider racist, what are some other sources of this trauma that can be affecting one's mental wellness? Trauma are everyday experiences that affect us. For, for example, we all have faced some type of trauma. Uh, the severity of the trauma differs from different from, from individuals. Examples of trauma could be abandonment from a caregiver, 
a divorce in a household, community violence, constantly watching uh, our, our people be, be killed and murdered on, on, on television. Watching and viewing these images can be uh, distressing for us, for us all. And, I, and when, I, when I think of trauma, and I tell a lot of my uh, patients, think of trauma as this. Imagine you're um, at, at a, the, the sand on a beach. So if I take my hand, and my hand can represent the trauma that I may face, community violence, witnessing uh, domestic violence, racism, things of that nature. If I take my hand and imprint it on, in the sand and release it, that imprint is still there. And that's the effect that trauma has on our brain. Uh, it would it would it would never go away. So our job is through mental health counseling is how can we continue to live with this and still be a productive citizen in society? Absolutely, and there have to be a number of ways that people can uh, not only find the assistance but also afford the assistance. We have just a few seconds left. If you'd like to comment on that, people think that's not affordable. Yes, uh, that is very true. Um, however, a lot of uh, 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 mental health therapists take insurances. A lot of on a, on a sliding scale fee. Um, those options are available. Uh, we have some of our, uh, our stars in, in, in society have done free initiatives for individuals. So it's, it's just about reaching out and taking that time. And a lot of people have may have a, had a bad experience with a therapist for the first time. The so first that. time doesn't right. The first time does not uh, mean that's all. Do your research. Look, look, look for what works for you. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Travis Andrews, thank you so much for your time today. Once again, I'd like to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find all of our full episodes online at pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time with our podcast series on Apple, iTunes or Spotify. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thank you for joining us. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.